Welcome to Jews on Film. My name is Harry Adentasser. I am a young Jewish movie podcaster. And uh, as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Daniel Zana. Hi, my name is Daniel Zana. I'm a documentary filmmaker, a video editor, and private eye. Uh, today, we are joined by a special guest, creative uh, behind Old Jewish Men. It's Noah Rinsky. Hey, Noah, how's it going? Hey, hi, Daniel. Wait, did you say you're a private eye? Well, you know, I've been starting trying to start up like this sort of private eye business. I'm inspired by the film, and I figure okay. if Elliot Gould could do it, like I could do it. So sure. I'm just putting those feelers out into the world. Like if anyone has like any mysteries they need solved, we'll, I might we'll be leave your guy. like a contact number maybe at the end of the episode for people to contact you for any. I'm pretty affordable. It's fifty dollars a day plus expenses, so you know, not too bad. What do you think? Inflation yeah. proof. What do you think Marlo was getting paid per day? Well, that's what he got movie. paid. So he's my inspiration. Oh, is that what he got? Yeah. <laughs> I was, did, it say that? did it say that in the movie? Yeah. Is that was my lame today? attempt at like a joke, but oh, yeah. okay. fell flat. I know. I kind of want to say I read somewhere that it's like $300 a day now, maybe for inflation, which oh, sure. okay. It's yeah. Doing okay. I think so. Noah, thank you so much for joining us today uh, on the podcast to discuss the long goodbye. I had nothing else to do. You had nothing else to do. <laughs> that's not a, doing anything. That's an endorsement for our podcast, huh? Well, I was either going to sit on the couch and drink seltzer or do your podcast. Yeah, and, I, yeah. and I chose to do both. Yeah. Yes. These Amazing. Were, uh, uh, it was four for $3 at Key Foods. That's a deal. It's not a deal. bad. It's not bad. What I, movie did Jason do on here? I meant to look. So Jason Diamond uh, did City Slickers with Billy Crystal. Oh, Cool. So, um, yeah, but, uh, you know, the rising cost of seltzer is something that I'm deeply concerned with, um, as a, you know, I'm getting to be an old Jewish man. And I feel like the, uh, you know, the cans of seltzer have gone up in price recently. Like the, they used to be $2 and now they're like $4. So what cans are you drinking? Uh, just like the generic store-bought stuff. Wait, a $4 individual can? No, no, no. Like a pack of oh, 12 like, or Jesus. something. Seattle. Never moving there. Yeah. And this is the kind of stuff you can expect from Noah's Old Jewish Men Instagram account. Just discussions about seltzer prices and things like that. Is that safe to say? Small, uh, big complaints about small things. I think I'm, I'm not the first Jew to make a career out of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is great. Um, I'm, uh, you know, I hate to cut off our discussion about seltzers to like get into the movie stuff uh, because that's what we're here to talk about. We have another podcast called Jews on Seltzer, which we could kind of have you on as well. But um, we'll save that for Patreon. Uh, so, you know, we are discussing The Long Goodbye starring Elliot Gould came out in 1973. You know, it's got a got a really good group of folks attached to this film. Uh, Robert Altman directed it. Uh, he also did films like MASH, Nashville, Gosford Park, lots of other things. Uh, it was written by Lee Brackett. She uh, wrote The Big Sleep, another film noir movie. Uh, she wrote Rio Bravo and Empire Strikes Back. Um, and it was filmed by Vilmos Zygmunt and, you know, beautifully shot. So in addition to Elliot Gould, we have Sterling Hayden starring as Roger Wade, uh, Nina Van Palant as Eileen Wade, Mark Rydell as Marty Augustine. There was a nice cameo by Arnold Schwarzenegger as the bodyguard, which we will get into. But All yeah, right. before we get way into it, I did want to ask you a few questions, Noah. Growing up, what was your familiarity with like Jewish film? So growing up, my mom would only let my brother and I watch black and white movies till I think we were uh, about 11. Uh, but I don't think we watched that many Jewish. Was there, I mean, we watched... Um, 
watched Filter on the Roof. That wasn't that was color though. Uh, we watched. Oh, yeah, I remember just remember watching all the Charlie Chaplin movies and Tarzan and all those uh, the classics. But as far as Jewish movies, nothing really sticks out honestly that much. I don't think I was. Oh, I guess the, I guess the Marx Brothers. I don't think I started watching Woody Allen movies until I was in college. Or no, late, you know, late in high school. Right. Sounds about right. You know, what about you guys? I didn't feel like I was out explicitly looking for Jewish movies kind of as I was growing up. Like there were the movies that I would watch in class that were shown to me by some teachers. And, you know, that to me was like, you know, kind of by Jews for Jews, very specifically, not kind of the Hollywood appeal, but I didn't start recognizing myself, you know, my Jewish experience in the movies until, you know, I started just looking at it from a new lens, which I would tie to around like high school time when I just started thinking of movies a little bit more critically. And that's when I felt like I started to see some religious, some religious like uh, perspective that kind of worked its way into a lot of movies, but rarely was it Jewish or at least in sort of the major American filmmakers, you know, there's a lot of Catholicism there. There's a lot of like just sort of religious guilt and then the stuff that comes with that. But the explicitly Jewish stuff, you know, I think was more, I, I kind of pursued that more, like you were saying with sort of the, the Woody Allen, the Marx brothers, and just kind of reaching back into, into my culture a little bit. That's kind of where I feel like I weigh in there. What about you, Daniel? Yeah. I, I mean, I think for me, it was like the 10 commandments was something that my dad had like yeah, on yeah. double, double VHS yeah, and sure. you know, like a lot of war movies. I feel like I saw Exodus maybe like in high yeah. school. Yeah. 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 That to me feels like a school yeah, when I actually too. think I saw that maybe seventh grade or that. sixth grade. Yeah. I'm always a big Paul Newman uh, person. And then like Europa Europa and like Diner oh, yeah. maybe. Like Europa, a lot Europa of Europa's a great movie. Yeah. So like, now that I'm thinking about it, probably like later on in high school, when you can start to like appreciate film more and, you know, when you start talking about the Holocaust more, you know, Schindler's List comes up, things like that. Um, but as a young kid, I, I'm sure like Five Will Goes West and American Tale, but like I honestly didn't make the connection maybe as a child that those were like Jewish stories. When did you first see Shoah? Maybe I haven't. Which one is that? Harry, you know what Shoah is? Are we talking about like the 10 hour documentary? Yeah, I don't think yeah. I saw honestly, that. I, yeah, I honestly need to sit down and watch it in full, but I mean, I've only just, seen... If, yeah. Watch it, like, I, I, I only watch it because of Tisha Bo. Of course. No, you know, it's a good way like, to, uh, to kill a 10 that? hours. Yeah. yeah. Right. It's incredible. I mean, it's incredible, but we don't talk about it. Wait till you have kids. Watch with your kids. <laughs> exactly. I was going to say, we'll save it for like our 100th episode spectacular. Maybe right. like a watch Show along it. or something. Just 10 hours the, long, though? That's Just a, 10 hours of just one of the darkest, most, you know... Gotcha. Really wow. Difficult really movies dark. to watch. Right. That'll be a fun special for our Patreon subscribers. Right. <laughs> Which we have to create. But anyway, um, I, um, I had heard this funny comedian. Do you guys know that comedian Modi? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. He had this funny bit and he was like, he was like, you know what? It's like, I don't want to watch Curb or Seinfeld or, you know, any of these Jewish shows. He's like, and I, when I get home, I want to watch Goyam. I only want to watch Goyam. And I feel the same way. And I was like, I'm dealing with Jewish stuff all day, but most of my, a lot of my, most of my friends are Jewish. I talk to my parents all day. By the time I get home, it's like, you know, let me watch, you know, British new wave or something like, so like let me watch right. some really non-Jewish people that I, I just want to look at some people that I just don't look like me, you know, and just really escape a little bit. And I, I feel that, you know, I used to be, I mean, I still watch, I guess, you know, Jewish comedy stuff, but I, I feel that a little bit. I don't know if you guys ever get that. I totally get that. I, you know, movies in some ways are escapist. And I think like, 
you know, I sometimes what I love like looking for in a movie is the sort of, you know, the, the classic like Roger Ebert sort of empathy machine where it's like mm-hmm. you really just get to open yourself to different and new experiences. Like I think if I had a choice right now to watch only very sort of explicitly Jewish films for the rest of my life or never watch those and only watch, you know, what's kind of outside that, I probably would still keep outside that because because like what you're saying, you know, I, I live that that's part of my experience. And right. I think we've definitely with this podcast, you know, I'm not trying to put down the whole concept of this podcast. Like I think right, that's exactly. Are you calling it quits? Definitely not. Like I was going to say, it's created this like really surprising joy when especially movies that I haven't heard of or I wasn't so familiar with and I'll I'll watch them. And like there's, you know, even there's a couple lines halfway through this movie that I'm sure we'll talk about that. It's just like, whoa, like Jewish, like our experience, you know, that guy's talking about Arab Shabbos. Like it's just there's something really exciting about that. But at the same time, like, yeah, that, that doesn't need to be, you know, everything. And I think that only is so cool. A because it exists within this vacuum of, you know, Hollywood cinema where there really isn't so much Jewishness, but B, because every once in a while, there are some things that obviously we can learn about our own experience. And sometimes I get a thrill out of thinking of other people kind of encountering our culture the way that I feel like I've been exposed to so many others. Yeah. I like this depiction in this film in that there's like some Jewish illusions and you can kind of see that, like you said, Harry, talking about moles and talking about Arab Shabbat and stuff like that. And, all these kinds of things, but then, you know, it also lets you see yourself represented, but then also just like see someone else, see a different representation of Judaism or like, oh, gangsters also celebrate Shabbat, apparently. Who knew, you know? Noah, this, this was a movie that we kind of came to together, but you had been familiar with it. So what got you excited about, you know, what are you excited to discuss with this movie? You know, how does it live as sort of a Jewish film, you know, in, in some ways in your head, uh, The Long Goodbye? You know, I, I think that I, I didn't, I don't remember coming away watching this movie and thinking, what a Jewish film. I don't think I remember thinking that at all. There were moments, you know, where I was like, oh, that's, that, that's cool. I think I actually really started to enjoy, I don't think I really enjoyed the movie deeply until he's, he comes in contact with the Hemingway kind of character. And that's right. when I think I was like, you know, I really like this movie now. And I think before that, it was like, this movie looks cool and I dig it. And Elliot Gould is cool. You know, it's nice to see like a, you know, a hot Jewish guy smoking cigarettes and stuff and throwing Kasha to the wind or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. But it wasn't until then where I was like, okay, this is uh this is a movie that I, that I'm really, that I'm really into. But I don't, yeah, as far as it being, as far as it being Jewish, you know, Elliot Gould is, is a great, it's, it's like a great catch for us that he's, that he's a Jew. Right. Yeah, it's like we really got lucky there. And now, like, since the film has come out almost 50 years ago, I feel like he's right in your wheelhouse as a old Jewish man. Yeah. Uh, have you ever, like, uh, chronicled him on your Instagram, old Jewish man? Yeah, a couple of times we, we, put him, we put him up there. Um, I think a lot of it actually had to do with, uh, with Jason. Jason uh, is, a big, is a big Elliot Gould fan and really kind of got me. Jason really got me into Elliot Gould more and... James Caan more, those two guys. Right. So I, I got really into James Caan after I saw Thief. Mm, have not really seen it, but I'd oh, like to check it out. I feel like we should yeah. do it. That's not a Jewish movie, but that is a that is a Jewish man playing a sure. uh, a tough uh, tough Chicago yeah. uh, gangster, blue collar gangster. And you're talking about Jason Diamond, past guest of the show, friend of the show, Jason Diamond. Uh, you should check yeah. out, for those who are listening now who have not checked out the episode on City Slickers, I would recommend doing that. Yeah, I mean, Elliot Gould, if I were to name, let's see, 
he's kind of like the last man stand. Him and Harvey Keitel, him because it was him, James Conn, and Harvey Keitel were kind of like the last sort of could be mistaken as Italian. Mm-hmm. Ellie Gould isn't really that guy, but but Harvey but uh, Harvey Keitel and James Conn are those guys, right? But could almost swarthy could almost be mistaken as Italian, you know, old Jewish men of that era. Right. We just did David Mamet's Homicide and Joe Montaigne did the reverse, which is he's Italian, but he played Jewish in that film. Uh, but it's a very like, uh, you know, like interchangeable. Yeah. yeah. Oh, does De Niro play Jewish sometimes? He plays Jewish in Once Upon a Time in America. Oh, right. Actually, I just saw Russell Crowe was playing Jewish. In, uh, can you name the movie that Russell Crowe was playing Jewish in? I bet mm-hmm. you cannot. I mean, I just saw some of Thor last night and he's playing Zeus, who's definitely not a Jewish character. So it's not that movie, but not here, I'll go movie. ahead. It seems like you had a, a guess, no? Hmm. Oh, was it um, Cinderella Man? No. No, I don't know. But that's a good guess. Like some Jewish boxer? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, um, American Gangster. Oh, who's he playing? Dutch Schultz? American, no, no, he's a cop. He's a cop in uh, American oh. Gangster. Jewish yeah. cop, another Jewish, Jewish cop. cop. There you go. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right, Harry, you know what time it is. You have your alarm set. It's time to be summary timer. There you got it. You got it. <laughs> okay, cool. So uh, we got a quick one this week, uh, shortened to the point, but I'll say more about that later. But it just reads, private investigator Philip Marlowe helps a friend out of a jam, but in doing so gets implicated in his wife's murder. I did want to say I love that you brought up homicide already, you know, in the context of the Italian Jewish, you know, film thing, because Homicide is, is a movie I thought about a lot. And obviously it's it's the most recent episode that Daniel that we recorded for this thing. So of course, mm-hmm. you know, these these Jewish films from similar eras, they start to blend together. But I thought both of these movies kind of the actual mystery at the heart of them, the plot almost takes a backseat to a lot of the world building and a lot of the tangential mm-hmm. things, you know, like you right. were saying, Noah, like those little details that kind of stick out to you. Like that's, what's so much more memorable about this movie than, you know, any of the actual investigation or the mystery, sure. which we'll get to this at the end, but is ultimately resolved very quickly and neatly at the end, kind of like homicide. But this was definitely the kind of movie where part of the way through, I was like, fuck, I'm too dumb to understand this. What the hell is going on? I'm confused. Right. Yes. I, th- I don't know if everyone had that watching it, but I was just like, I think also I was just like, whoa, fuck, I've been mem- way too mesmerized with how the world is looking cool and some of these some of these shots and like the beach and all this. hundred percent. I completely forgot. What the, wait, who is he chasing again? Who slept with who? <laughs> exactly. And this guy's in Mexico. Uh, okay, okay. Well, whatever. It's a cool movie. And I think that's the point. Like the, the whole Hemingway, right? The Hemingway standing that standing that we kind Roger of follow Wade, for like yeah. that big scene, Roger Wade, yeah. like that has nothing to do with the plot. I mean, yeah. obviously in some ways, but we spend yeah. so much time just playing with this character and that's what it feels like Altman was more excited about. But anyways, I know I'm yeah. getting way ahead of myself. Daniel, no, you're if good. you want to. No, no, I, I totally agree with that. <laughs> I'm excited to discuss this. Yeah. He was so- kind of a scene stealer though. He was uh, Roger Wade. Guy. Yeah, Jesus. I mean, yeah, so Sterling Hayden had worked with Altman in the past and I think some other films as well. And it seems like a lot, according to Wikipedia and things like that, he was like always drunk and high on set. So they kind of had to work around him. He improvised most of his lines, um, but very captivating character for sure. I do want to dive into it, but let's take a quick break and we'll be right back to discuss the plot of The Long Goodbye. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Jews on Film. We're discussing The Long Goodbye, directed by Robert Altman, starring Elliot Gould. And uh, Daniel, why don't you get us started running through the plot? Sure. 
we start out our film noir sort of takes place in California as most film noir films start out with cat food. You know, we start out with our Philip Marlowe character. Uh, I, we should say up top, if we haven't said already, that this is an adaptation of a Raymond Chandler novel. And so Raymond Chandler had, has done like lots of detective and film noir detective novels. But yeah, it's kind of an interesting way to start out the film. We are introduced to Philip Marlowe, constantly smoking cigarettes, played by Elliot Gould in this very sort of plain attire, black suit, white shirt, unbuttoned, some a tie on that he's, you know, got already pre-tied. And, you know, he starts out by getting his cat food at like three in the morning. I thought sort of him interacting with his cat was like a very nice introduction to him as like a detective. You get a sense that he's like very empathetic and caring for his cats. You ever heard of Save the Cat? Say a little bit more about that. The most famous screenwriting book is by this guy, Blake Snyder. It's called Save the Cat. And the ethos of the book basically is if you want to create a sympathetic protagonist, you need to quote unquote, save the cat which means that in the first five pages of your movie, the main character should, a cat's running the road and he should save the cat. It's funny that this has like, now this is the, the most cliche thing that he has a straight cat and he's going and feeding the tuna. How can you not like this guy? He's, he's walking a past, he's a mensch. You know, this brothel of women. He's saving the cat. He's just like going to do his job, but he's not getting that, he's not getting paid a lot for. So it's like, all right. I mean, nowadays this would be like, come on. But you know, back then it was, you know, it was, it was great, but it's funny that, that you know, Blake Snyder uses that as the... It's so interesting because this was something I wanted to bring up, but, you know, in the uh, the Roger Ebert review of this movie, he was, you know, well, we didn't talk so much about the critical response to this movie, but it was very mixed. A lot of people, you, you mentioned this as a Raymond Chandler adaptation and this Philip Marlowe character who's in a lot of Chandler's books and has been adapted into films, you know, usually is this sort of noir hero from, you know, the 40s, 50s, kind of that era. And this was like kind of transposing that character into, you know, then modern day, you know, early 70s kind of thing. And a lot of people were very upset with how the character was translated because, right. you know, we'll talk about the sort of Jewishification of him, right? The whole Elliot Gould of that. I think that'll right. be a good conversation for this podcast, but he also just turns him into a slightly more morally ambiguous character. And one of the things that I mentioned that Roger Ebert had said about this movie is that he mentioned that it works in relation to other noirs in the way that mm -hmm. it kind of subverts okay. almost everything about those films. You know, it's not, nothing is as cut and dry as it seems. And, you know, this Marlowe isn't even through the end of it, like he doesn't all figure everything out and he's not so good at kind of judging this sort of modern world in the way that things are more complicated. But what you're saying about saving the cat made me think of that because mm -hmm. the cat that like, yeah, we see him being very kind to this cat, but it's a little more complicated than that. And he's kind of like, he's running out for the food, but then right. he like kind of loses the cat. And like, even though, yes, no one's like faulting him for that. The cat kind of runs away when he isn't looking, he's detained by the police the next day. Like he doesn't right. really have like a choice in that. And there still is this sense. I felt the whole time, like, is he ever going to go back and look for the cat? Like he's, he's abandoning, he lost the cat. And that was something that like was kind of riding me until, you know, even through the end of the movie when they obviously call back to it. But I was kind of sad about that. We never really see the cat again. It, it disappears. <laughs> so you, I, what, you, you want to be good, but you don't necessarily know how. Exactly. Right. Like it, if this is a way to get the audience on his side, it's like, oh, wow, this guy is, you know, he's going out at three in the morning. He's trying. He didn't, they didn't have the cat food. So he does this clever trick where he takes a different cat brand and puts it in the empty can of the old mm -hmm. one that so he knows good. his cat likes. So it's like, you like, yeah, he's trying to do it, 
but the payoff is that he loses the cat and we never see it again. Like, right. I don't know if that's putting me on his side. That's like, what is this dude? How did he lose his cat? What does he care about? He's the kind of guy who will like buy his neighbor's brownie mix and when he's going to the store and, you know, that sequence at the beginning where the cat's just like crawling all over his neck and he's just like having a full on conversation with this cat as he's like mumbling with the cigarette kind of hanging out of his mouth. Wait so hungry. It's worth noting out a couple of things. He's sort of like this 1950s detective trapped in like a 1970s California. He drives this very old fashioned car. He dresses in a sort of old fashioned way. So sort of seeing that, I think, also is a little bit uh, unfamiliar to a lot of audiences, which is why, like you said, Harry, the film was like critically acclaimed much later, but like the film was not really well received at the beginning and performed very poorly at the box office. Yeah. I, I think Altman actually in a quote talks about how he wanted his character to be exactly what you're describing. Someone who was kind of taken from the fifties, these fifties noirs where everything is a little bit more cut and dry. And, you know, he's like this expert at figuring out sort of what's morally good, what's morally bad, and then kind of place him 20 years later without actually advancing the character so that he's kind of out of sorts. And I think then the director's commentary, he like calls him like Rip Van Marlowe, right? right? Which is a play on like Rip Van Winkle. Cause it's like, it's someone who basically was a noir detective in the fifties, fell asleep, woke up 20 years later, yeah. and now doesn't understand a world that's become so complicated, which, you know, is obviously what we're faced with throughout the film. Was a short story set in the fifties? I believe they were like the Raymond Chandler films were, or the books were written in like the forties and fifties. Yeah, exactly. You know, so after getting back from the grocery store and getting his cat some food, which ultimately I think the cat rejects because the cat sort of sees through his uh, his little ruse and subterfuge, he is approached by his friend, Terry Lennox, who asks him, no questions asked, to just drive him to Tijuana. He does that because he's a mensch, you know, like he'll go and, and grab cat food. He'll also drive his friend. I'm not willing to drive a friend to the airport, but this guy is willing to drive his friend to Tijuana, which is easily like six hours away. So kudos to him. And then the next day, the police come to his house. They question him about Terry Lennox because Terry Lennox's wife is dead and they assume that Terry Lennox is responsible for it. But yeah, in the face of adversity, um, Philip Marlowe, is sort of wisecracker the whole way through. He's kind of unflappable and he's brought in for questioning. He is brought in for charges against, uh, you know, sort of lying to the police. But I think they do something where they like shove him into a police officer and then they bring him in just so that they can question him. As a private detective, he kind of knows the, the ropes and knows that he can't be brought in unless there's charges. So they kind of frame him a little bit, bring him in. Okay, never mind. I thought, I don't remember that well, but I thought... He was handcuffed, and then one of the police officers shoved him into the other police officer, and they said, oh, you assaulted him. Let's oh, bring you in. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they bring him in, they they fingerprint him, and then, you know, he does a few, like... sort. I, I heard that there was this improv where he took his fingerprints and he was, like, doing this sort of, like, game day stuff. Listen... What are you here for? Well, I'm here because I'm getting ready for this big game Saturday. You know, we're playing Notre Dame and I hope I catch a touchdown pass. In the face of authority and adversity, he just kind of resorts to jokes, which to me is like very unlike sort of the film noir characters that we're used to, which are these like hard boiled voiceover, you know, 
kind of characters that you you typically in in film noirs you kind of get a lot of voiceovers you know and then i walked in and the dame was sitting over there and you get a lot of that in film noirs but here you kind of really don't know what's going on in his mind other than what he says Uh, but i wanted to kind of pause on this and and just chit chat about the interrogation scene and sort of our introduction to philip marlowe that like what you're talking about the sort of quippiness of his character he's like really like a smart ass right it's like everything people say he is like it's like everything has a line and people say like do you think you're smart and he's just and he's like running with it and i i totally agree with you on your read that it's not very like a noir protagonist like he like instead of being what i think would be much more stoic like you're saying and more like you could still be the smartest in the room but he's just taking it to this new level of just really being like the smart aleck and that to me was part of the jewishness of the character and like we that we've been alluding to that the sort of casting of elliot gold who is very sort of jewish presenting you know has like that thick curly hair and just like holds himself that way and just the way that he acted through that scene as this sort of like smart ass like I, I thought that was probably like a very Jewish take on this character, on this Marlowe character and kind of that read of him. And that kind of determines how it, it kind of like, it doesn't bite him back, but it's like when eventually the case kind of does unfold and we will get to this sort of towards the end, but he really, the case really does like slip away from him. Like every time you think he kind of has it down and knows it. And like, there's one big scene where he basically says like, I figured it out. This is what's going on. It's just like the movie completely uh, pulls the rug from under right. him. And it really like cuts into that. Like he thinks he's the smartest in the room, but you know, all the time, like even at that time, right. We find out later the police knew information that they weren't telling him. And he thinks he's like, you know, one upping them, but like they knew about some of the other alibis that, you know, that Marlowe is going to probably bring to them later already at that point. So it's just, it's just a funny balance between who he thinks, how he thinks of himself and like where the world kind of meets him. Yeah. It's interesting. Like, you know, previously in other Raymond Chandler adaptations, uh, Philip Marlowe was played by like Humphrey Bogart. So if you think about Humphrey Bogart and Elliot Gould as like two different versions of of the Philip Marlowe character, it's, uh, you know, quite a bit different. I was just thinking about how when I was watching it, I think I I, I thought, oh, wow, yeah, this guy's a Jew. I, I, I forgot about that. I mean, the guy's he just seems he just seems so kind of unflappable, you know, in, in, in some ways. I'm like, oh, yeah, but he's. He's a Jew. He's like, wow, wow. I, is he actually supposed to be a Jew? And everyone's like, oh, yeah, 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 he is. He's, you know, he's smoking and all this stuff, and he seems kind of fearless. And, you know, he's, he's, he's up late all the time. It's like, it's great that, you know, Robert Altman wanted to portray a Jewish character like that, too, and to kind of Jew, Jew, Jewify this, this, this part or whatever. You know, I think it's, it's great to, to have a Jewish character like that. Yeah. You wouldn't necessarily see a, a character like that today. I, oh, and I looked into it. it. Altman, you might think he's actually not Jewish. So, so I was trying to maybe draw that, you know, thread that needle a little bit. But Altman is, uh, you know, I think they changed the last name. It used to be Altman with two N's, and it was he has like Catholic. Um, he was raised Catholic, but he has like Irish and German roots. So, sorry, can't chalk that up to uh, his Jewish background. You know, yeah, I do think the character Elliot Gould's portrayal of it. I just like, you know, I loved it. A couple of days later. Marlowe was released from prison um, because they said that Terry Lennox was found dead in Mexico. And that's sort of where our mystery like kicks off. Uh, they show him autopsy photos. And uh, so he's, yeah, he's released from prison. And then he goes to the bar uh, to get his messages and he finds his next case, which is Eileen Wade is looking for her husband, Roger Wade, who we kind of mentioned already. Roger Wade is this sort of Ernest Hemingway-like character and Eileen Wade is our femme fatale, I would say, in this, in, you know, in this 
instance, you know, femme fatale, for those who are not familiar, like in film noirs, usually there's our private eye. And then there's usually a femme fatale who, a female character usually who... Tempting the protagonist into doing things that he wouldn't normally do. That's right. And kind of yeah. leading leading him to not good stuff, ultimately, like sometimes leading to his death or his imprisonment, things like that. So like basic instinct or whatever, you know? Yeah, totally. Classic, uh, yeah. But of course, like, it's interesting. I, I, maybe we'll talk about this now. I feel like, you know, with the introduction of Eileen Wade and also you mentioned before Noah, like his neighbors next door who are constantly outdoors doing yoga and meditation and, but most of the time are naked with all these female uh, characters sort of Marlo doesn't seem to be the least bit interested. And I'm wondering, I wanted to talk about that. Would you say that it's a, it's like a moral thing or to me, it just kind of read that he was kind of like focused on the case and not distracted, but I'm curious to get your reads, Harry and Noah. I thought that was really, it was a really interesting uh, first scene to, to, because it wasn't something that it was definitely intentional. He definitely wanted, you know, Altman definitely wanted us to think, you know, why isn't this guy, you know, what's he so worried about this cat for? He should, he should strip these chicks, you know? Like, oh, this is a handsome guy and these girls right. are just there. What's he doing? And I thought to myself, well, maybe he did it before and he didn't like it or whatever. And he's just you know, going back home. He's been there, done that or kind of thing. Right. But it, you see it again with uh, with Eileen Wade. Yeah. And so there's what clearly is he, something there. I mean, like she, there. yeah. Is he gay? I don't know. We don't know. But, uh, you know, maybe he's trying to say this kind of character is above, you know, maybe it's like an ele- he's an elevated, more of the elevated character. I don't know. I mean, it's not really till the end that, uh, if I remember the ending correctly, he kills Harry Lennox. You know, you, I guess you're, you're, you're kind of wondering yourself if his arc was actually, you know, is, is, this, is this a guy who descended, is this guy descended or, or ascended morally? I like, I definitely think that there's something morally going on there. Like to me, it partly felt like what we were talking about, the sort of the Rip Van Marlowe, the kind of guy out of place, like they, and I don't know, you know, this was obviously the early seventies, but they seemed like sort of these characters of like the hippie sure. lifestyle of just mm-hmm. kind of like, you know, everything California. goes. And right. It's like, he's got his fifties morality and he's right. in the he can't right, even right, comprehend right, right, right. it. And like, right. He, right. yeah. And he's not going to get up there and like admonish them. You know, that's not kind of where he is, but, but he's, he's living like, in a loft. That's the thing. That's the other thing. He's living in this like seventies bungalow. Right. He's not living like a 1950s Levittown house or something that's like true. that. So it's, he's driving, a, he's driving a convertible. You know, when he's smoking, I mean, he's, right. he's smoking like he's I driving guess, his fifties like convertible. Right. That's, yeah. you know, it's like an like, old coupe. Yeah. yeah. It, but it's, it's almost like he's in two places at once. Like right. it's, it's part of, you know, developing this idea that he can't make sense of the world right now, which again, like to me pays off so well when he really is kind of stunted by this case. Cause he just doesn't expect, you know, the femme fatale. He doesn't expect just kind of, you know, the, the morality, the morality plays of all these people. Like I, right. I think we'll, we'll get up to this scene, but when, um, you know, when, when someone, I, I guess I'll allude to it, is kind of smashed in the face with a bottle. Like, you know, right. Altman was talking about that scene and he's like, he's like, he said the reason he put that in the movie, cause I think he added that to the script that it's definitely not in the book. I don't know if it was written into the script, but he said he added that in because he just wanted to like shock the audience and remind right. them like things aren't cut and dry anymore. We're not in the fifties things mm-hmm. like, ridiculous acts of violence that are so unexpected to people that are so unexpected could just happen because things aren't black and white anymore, you know? And that's just, that's such a, a predominant theme in the way that, you know, Marlowe engages with the world. And I think that extends to, you know, these women, his neighbors. So much to say, I feel like just one quote to call out, you know, uh, Marlowe later in the film does say something like, yeah, what makes you say that? Well, look at him up there doing all those contortions together and with no clothes on. Oh, they're just doing yoga. What? 
yoga. I don't know what it is, but it's yoga. Yeah, what do they do for a living? They dip candles. What? Yeah, they got a cute little shop over on Hollywood Boulevard. They dip them and sell them. I can remember when people just had jobs. He's like, yeah, total flummoxed and doesn't get us by what they do. Right. You know, so he goes to get his messages. He, he's introduced to Eileen Wade. Eileen Wade says, I want you to go find my husband. Marlo is a good detective. He's able to put things together and like is able to like interrogate people, pose as people, get the right information. And like, so he, he ends up tracking down Roger Wade, who's at a rehab facility, you know, sort of being held like mentally like mental prisoner by like this Dr. Varinger character. Um, and eventually he sort of breaks Roger Wade out and brings him home. And Eileen is very thankful. He's like a very successful author. So yeah, like you were said, Noah, he's kind of very much a, uh, a Hemingway type character. He comes home and he finds uh, another unwelcome house guest. He, we are now introduced to Marty Augustine and Marty Augustine is a Jewish gangster who wants his money back. Apparently Terry Lennox had stole a bunch of money from him or owed him some money. I'm not sure if it was from like drugs or gambling or something like that, but he owed him quite a bit of money. And so they then sort of interrogate Marlo and sort of try to intimidate him. But he's really like, again, not, not phased at all and kind of is a wisecracker. And then to what you were saying, Harry, you know, we, we talk about the scene you mentioned just to show sort of that he's like serious, you know, he's, he's, uh, cheating on his wife uh, with with his uh, with his character Joanne Eggenweiler. Um, oh, that's right. Marty, oh, yeah, I forgot yeah so one. Marty Augustine has his wife and his kids at like a diet camp. I think is what he says, and so he <laughs> has his non-Jewish uh, mistress. So, like you said, Harry, he takes a bottle and smashes it on her, on her face. I wanted to just draw a quick stretch for you know maybe like a like a wedding, you know, similar to like at, at weddings when you like step on a glass. Anytime there's like a beautiful thing, you always want to like break the glass as like a symbol and a sign of like remembrance of the destruction of the temple. So maybe there's some loose. I mean, this what is temple? very. What's that? The holy temple. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, but yeah. Uh, so I thought that was like the biggest stretch I could probably pull out for this episode. But, you know, just the idea that he's just like Marty Augustine wants his money. And for some reason, he decides to like smash his his mistress's face to show that he like means business with Marlo. And Marlo's just like, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? Yeah, no. For, I mean, first of all, that that's definitely that that's a read. You know, I'm not sure that's exactly what, you know, Altman and the crew were going for. But that's why it's I, called the stretch, can, my friend. For sure. No, that, that is a stretch for sure. But what uh, is awesome about that scene is that or he smashes her in the bottle in the face and he says mm-hmm. like. Sit down. That's someone I love and you I don't even like. You have an assignment, cheapy. Find my money. You know, he uses that as, yeah, as yeah, intimidation yeah. for Marlo yeah. because he's like, look what I could do to her. And he is just, he is this erratic, unexpected character that Great like, character. in a lot of ways, you know, there, there could have been ways that he could have tied figured into the plot if maybe he had been, you know, the killer of Marty, but ultimately isn't that, you know, we're jumping around a little bit, but he ultimately isn't proven to be the killer. So he really is this sort of like tangential to the plot. It's like, there are a couple figures that are part of this murder scheme that we're trying to investigate that, you know, Marlo's getting close to. And this is just sort of like a whole side thing where it's right. like, oh, by the way, there's this gangster who's looking for the money that Marty never paid him. And it's just like, ultimately totally to the side. And he is just, such, this gangster is such a, ridiculous character and i loved 
you know, I mentioned it earlier, but he's the one who says like, I'm supposed to be in temple right now. Like it's Arab Shabbos right now. Like, and mm-hmm. I'm just wasting my time with you. And I just, he, it's sunny. Cause ultimately I think he's the most Jewish, explicitly Jewish character in the sure. movie, even though that's the read we want to give to Elliot Gould. It's like, this is the guy that like represents the sort of Jewish gangster, but it's not a Jewish gangster you might've known in the fifties. Cause this one is just completely erratic, unexpected. And, you know, we'll see when he kind of shows, shows back up in the movie later, but like full of just the craziest ideas. And I, I won't spoil that until we actually get up to that in the discussion, but he is just, he was, he might've been my favorite character. Yeah, me nice. too. Marlo's looking at this guy like, you know, gangsters used to be this way. This, I guess this is gangsters plus 50s gangsters plus cocaine. This is what this is, you know, or whatever. Yeah, he was kind totally. of like a character out of Boogie Nights or something, you know, whatever. Totally, yeah. yeah. There's a couple of, of fun scenes where, um, you know, now that Roger and Eileen are back together, Marla goes back, I think, to collect payment or also just like check in on Roger and see how he's doing. I think he comes in, they're having a party. Roger's like very drunk and Eileen, you know, Eileen has like dinner with him uh, after the party ends, you know, Roger's like too drunk. Beringer shows up for his payment. Uh, Roger just makes a fool out of himself. And then I think he kicks everyone out of the party. Eileen and, and Marlo have like a chat and they sort of, again, like you said before, Noah, like this would be an opportunity where like in the film, like the detective goes to bed with the film, the film, the femme fatale, but you know, he's above it all. And he just has like a, a glass of beer and a cordon, chicken cordon bleu that she makes. And, you know, he's like praising her cooking and things like that. And I'm like, all right, this is it. This is the scene, but it doesn't happen. Um, and, you know, he's above it all in, in, in a way. And, you know, I think we do find a lot, a little bit more about Eileen and, and he starts to like, you know, investigate little by little. He's asking uh, Roger and Eileen, did you know Terry Lennox? They initially say no. And then this truth comes out. Oh yeah. Cause you, your husband said this. And so he's kind of like trying to like find the pieces here. Um, and, and the mystery sort of starts to unravel a little bit. That night, Roger kind of goes up, he's drunk. He disappears for a little bit. And Marlo and Eileen are, you know, talking a little bit. And then all of a sudden we have this very big scene where, which actually wasn't in the original book. That's sort of adapted for this movie where, Roger basically, as Eileen and Marlo are talking, they look out the window, they're on this beach home and they see Roger kind of waddle, like wading into the water and kind of just falls over and clearly looks like he's, you know, collapses into the ocean trying to commit suicide. And they jump, they run down, Marlo and Eileen run down to kind of save him. And there's this dramatic scene where they just search through the ocean, but ultimately they're not able to find them. So in the heat of that drama, in we, we kind of, that's where a lot of the, the case actually unfolds because Marlo starts asking Eileen, you know, like, did he kill like Sylvia, like Sylvia, who's Harry's wife, right? That's like the big case. Like, did he kill her? Like what happened? And she basically confesses that, yeah, Roger had been having an affair with Sylvia and she probably found out about it and killed her. And Marlo's really empowered by this because he's like, okay, I finally figured it out. I can, you know, absolve my friend Terry's because Terry didn't do it. I have, you know, an actual alibi. I know who killed Terry is innocent. It's not him. It's, it's gotta be this guy, uh, Roger. And basically this is what I was alluding to earlier when I said that the police are like always a couple steps ahead. And we think we have this huge confession and we're like, Marlo, he figured it out. He kind of solved the case. But then when he goes to talk to the police, they're like, 
Roger was already in the clinic by the time, like, yes, we know he went to their house, but he went to their house in the afternoon and Sylvia wasn't actually killed till the night. So he has an alibi he's done. And that kind of leaves Marlowe very, very confused. So whatever, we just leave this scene where all of a sudden we're not sure, you know, we we think that, you know, maybe Roger had something to do with this. That might be why he killed himself. And Eileen is kind of playing this very innocent, you know, this was, I think they were cheating on it. She seems like this whole movie, she's just been trying to get away, but we're kind of left in this place where, it feels like someone's not being honest, whether it's the police, whether it's uh, Roger, but uh, sorry, whether it's uh, Marlowe, you know, what he what he does, what he knows and what he doesn't know. But we're kind of left a little bit stuck here. I don't think that the Hayden Sterling character if that Roger would have had an affair with anyone given his condition. The guy seemed like there's no libido here. Mm-hmm. This guy's it's not. True. I didn't suspect that. Wait, what was the plot with he was in the rehab center? Yeah, he was in the rehab center. And they were convicted. They they thought he didn't pay. Marlo was just a guy where everyone's just like, you know what? This happened. You're you're on the you're on the hook. You figure it out. Yeah, exactly. Right. Well, didn't they come to him and they asked him for the money to pay Roger's bill? Is that what uh, happened? Well, I think I think, I think Roger ends up paying it. Yeah, Roger ends up paying it under duress from from Doctor Veringer. But like Marlo, like broke him out of rehab, kind of right. against his. Uh, you know, he shouldn't have meddled with other people's like plans. But I guess Eileen wanted him out and Roger was maybe trying to check himself in and maybe do better for himself. But yeah, for some reason, Eileen wanted him back in the house, but uh, he just seemed like a very unhappy person. It's funny. You said Noah, that like this guy has like no libido at the party. Like you compare someone like Marla, who we talked about previously is kind of this sort of like asexual character or like, and like Roger Wade is this like loud, boisterous, almost like, you know, like a, like a Hemingway type, sort of like a womanizer kind of person where he like walks into the party and like, he's talking about all the women there and things like that. It's interesting that he ends up with a woman like Eileen or that Eileen tolerates him, you know, but apparently, you know, they, they were, he was not faithful, right? It wasn't the whole thing that like he was sleeping with Terry Lennox's wife. Yeah, no, that that's what Eileen tried to convince Marlo. But ultimately, we find she out that she was sleeping with wait. God. She was sleeping with Terry, right? Yeah, she, she was, was sleeping with Terry. Terry. That's yeah. that's okay, the so big the twist. That she yeah, was just setting him up. That yeah. she was framing him. Roger. She hated yeah. this guy. See, with that, exactly. that sort like, of voiceover, like falls asleep on you when you're trying to have sex with him. Right, right. He was like, yeah. "Fuck this guy. He's a drunk. I'm yeah. gonna bang exactly." And that's why I think that. Right. Throughout the movie, she's like threatening, like, I'm going to leave you. I'm going to leave you tomorrow. Yeah. And she's trying to make it like it's almost like a gaslighting thing where she's trying to like put it on him. Like if you keep coming sure. home drunk, which obviously is part of it, like yeah. I'll leave you. Yeah, but it, 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 it becomes clear getting drunk. The crazy. Exactly. Because yeah. she clearly wanted to run away to Mexico, which she kind of does at the end. You know, right. right. So I think after this party, after uh, Roger, you know, commits suicide in the water, uh, we, we then sort of talk about that. We. You know, we then go to this scene where Marlo comes home late one night. Marty Augustine is there. And then they bring him back to his office where they confront him again. And, uh, you know, they ask for the money. He again doesn't have it. And then there's this sort of like strip tease where he's like, let's just get down to let's just. Oh, yeah. Did they, did they get oh Schwarzenegger to get naked? Uh, he has, down to his underwear. Yes. Is it right? yes I, think yeah. I thought when I was watching this, you know, I was like. Oh, there's something I, I can't imagine that scenes in the book. And I was right. like, okay, they got Schwartz. It's probably they, not. Yeah. They got to get this guy shirt off. Sure, somehow. It's, 
uncredited. Yeah, it's his uncredited. Yeah, it's so role. funny because I know, yeah. right? Well, it's uncredited. I mean, Dan, you said it was like a cameo earlier, but this is like pre everything Schwarzenegger. Like, this sure. is just, I think he was just a bodybuilder that like wanted to get some acting credits and just kind of like showed up in this movie. Like, Sometimes, I think this is yeah. one of those, like, they didn't know what they had, but what they probably did know was that he has, you know, this incredible physique yeah. that I'm sure they were excited to let's get him naked. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Everyone gets down to their true self and they say, Marlo, where's the right. money? Where's the money? Where's the money? Yeah. Cause Marty, Marty's looking for the money, right? He thinks Still. that Marlo Still. has it on him. So mm-hmm. he says, why don't you strip down? And then it's this great where, you know, right. Marlo kind of responds in his very quippy way. He goes, why don't you strip down? And then Marty's like, sure. Like, I will. Yeah, right, right, like, right. He goes, I'd be happy to. I've got nothing to hide here. And he tells yeah. everyone in the room to like strip down. And it's this very funny scene where one guy's like, oh, I can't because, you know, I've got some scars I don't want to show. And he's like, okay, so you go deal with the phones in the other room. You don't have to. Everyone right. else strip down. Yeah. And it's right. just this comically ridiculous scene that really good scene. like we, we've been saying to someone like Marlo probably just doesn't make sense. You know, he thinks right. he's like smartest in the room, this quippy, whatever. He's not expecting him to say, sure, like, let's all go along with this. But call your bluff. it's just exactly. It's just this ridiculous sequence that in a very, I, I would call it like a deus ex machina way, you know, mm-hmm. is it, just kind of resolved off camera. Like we have this huge threat. It's like, where's the money? We're going to beat you up. We need to get this money. And then, yeah. No, hold on. There's a phone call in the other room. That's yeah, what right. I was, and then all of I was sudden, gesturing. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Marty gets this phone call and then he comes back and he goes, oh, it turns out we have the money. And I don't even think we ever find out where he got the money from or what the phone call was, but it just kind of like, but Arnold, it's you just can leave so, your shirt off. Right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But Arnold, like, let's, let's hold the camera on you. But it's just, again, it's just, it's everything I've been saying about just leaving Marlo in this, like, he's just, he's not solving this. He's just so lost with all this. And you know, we just saw him a scene ago where he was sure he figured out the murder that it had to do with this affair and that it was, you know, Roger who did it. And it's just these last 10 minutes of the movie that kind of follow this Marty sequence, just upend everything that I think the audience knows and everything that I think Marlo knew. Yeah. And then we see Joanne with like sort of her, her like band-aids on and everything calling back to her. But then he does find, you know, as we're kind of, as they're sort of starting to undress Marlo, he does find a $5,000 bill, which Terry Lennox had sent him in the mail. When he's checking his mail, he gets like this $5,000 bill from Terry. So thanks for taking me to Tijuana. Here's $5,000. Not a bad deal. Um, And then, you know, Marty's like, where did you get this money from? And he's like, oh, a client paid for it. So I think that the connection between the two kind of lets Marlo or lets Marty know that Marlo's kind of like an honest person and, and, you know, tells him a little bit. He leaves his office. He goes downstairs and then he sees Eileen. I think it's I think what I what I. I'm now putting together is that Eileen had dropped off the money, right? Because Eileen is leaving the parking garage from the building he yes. came out of. So Eileen must have dropped off the money in those sort of like valise uh, suitcase to Marty Augustine and is like, here, I understand that Marlo's like uh, in trouble for your stuff. Here's the money, take the money. So basically Marlo sees her and he's like, oh, this is it. The case is resolved. Let me go tell Eileen. So he's chasing Eileen down the street and then he gets, you know, in a very sort of comic fashion, he's chasing after her. There's red light. He's going to catch up. She zooms off and then he ends up getting hit by a car. Oh, right. He's picked up in an ambulance and then I believe uh, taken to the hospital. You know, you see, you start out seeing this person in this like sort of mummy outfit. Uh, So Marlo, we actually think that that's Marlo, but then we pan out and it's, or zoom out and then we see Marlo sitting there. He puts on his coat, takes out his uh, IV and then walks out and he says, oh, I like your movies. You know, I'm sort of making a mummy joke there. Um, And then for some reason, the little, the the guy uh, gives him like a little mini harmonica, which I thought was like a very strange touch. So then he starts playing it kind of a nice 
weird device. I don't know. This whole, like this whole back half of the movie was like very bizarre, but I was here for it. I loved it all because it's not sort of like the traditional noir uh, stuff. And then, you know, Marlo goes down to Mexico. He has like a new, you know, after all this stuff has been resolved already, he has sort of a new angle to the case. So he goes down to Mexico. He interrogates the coroner and his assistant. He tries to bribe them. He ends up learning the truth about uh, Terry Lennox. And so then he goes down to Terry Lennox's whereabouts and confronts him. Terry Lennox calls him a born loser, basically, after he confronts him about all this stuff that was going on. So what does Marlowe do in a very surprise ending, which was sort of, uh, you know, different than, than the book. He takes out his pistol and shoots Terry Lennox. How's the book end? And then walks away. You know, I don't know. I don't know. That's a good question. I should look that up before I say that. But from my understanding, Philip Marlowe is sort of like this trusting character and this, this, this detective that we sort of um, align with. But then for him to do something as cold-blooded as to like murder someone else when he's trying to be solving a case is kind of like not what people are used to. Um, and as he's walking away, he sees Eileen uh, Wade drive towards where, you know, ostensibly Terry Lennox is. And that is how the movie ends. So who was really credits. the victim of this whole thing? Roger. Hmm. Right. Yeah. How, do, how do you mean? Well, he was kind of the patsy, right? I mean, he was the guy that was going to be blamed for the, he was driven to kill himself, essentially. She was driving him to drink, hoping that he would either kill himself or admit, or he could, or could just be blamed for the murder, right? It sounds about right. right? Let me... He just was trying to make him as unreliable as possible. She so was cheating on him and him. trying to kind of set him up as being the murderer. Right. Just right. Like, I mean, so Terry originally, right, he, the murder is like the sort of murder of passion because it's the story is that Roger kind of went up to, you know, confronted Terry over this. And, you know, he told basically Terry's, you know, to ter Terry's uh, wife, Sylvia, about the affair. So that led to Sylvia and Terry getting into this big fight. And and that's kind of what Terry right. confesses to, that Sylvia. he basically hit her. Exactly. Sylvia, so Sylvia, she's, yeah. she's really the victim. She's for really sure. the victim. I forgot about but then, So Terry kind of kills her in this moment of passion. And then this whole movie is just kind of like, OK, how can we get Terry sort of absolved? And that's why he has to fake his death and run away and kind of clean up you know, everything that's going on here to kind of clear it up. So that's why I think exactly what you're saying. Eileen sets up, you know, her husband, Roger, to kind of be like this drunk alcoholic. Like, yeah. And that's why she needs to find him because he's in this like facility. And she's like, no, I need him around because someone has oh, to take the fall for this, right. which is why she ultimately tries to set him up and says, oh, you know what? I think they were having an affair. And like, you know, she knows no one's going to be able to corroborate that. So, you know, she kind of says, oh, they were having an affair. He must have killed her. And like, that's kind of how she... uh clean thinks that she kind of cleans up the whole situation but ultimately as much as i'm not giving marlo credit for really solving the case because i think he stumbles upon it i think everything right. at, at every turn he's kind of surprised mm -hmm. he is able to at the end of the day you know track down terry and kind of you know bring him to justice because he is you know the murderer not not in a conventional noir right. way you know in a very breaking all the rules just kind of shooting him point blank you know shooting someone defenseless point blank but you know ultimately i think his morals have been so shattered by what he's seen and by you know all the you know the violence that he's kind of engaged with he like doesn't want to set this up for process he doesn't want to hand him back over to the cops he kind of you know he's he's corrupted a little bit he takes this into his own hands and then ultimately kills terry to your question the, the way that the book ends is that marlo and lennox like have a chat and then i think he returns the five thousand dollars like thank you money and then they just kind of part ways so it's like mm -hmm. very different very different sort of approach. What were you going to say? Go ahead. Well, I was going to say that Marlo must have been really upset. At the beginning of the movie, he offered to drive 
Terry to Tijuana, right? Right. It must have been the best. I mean, were they the best of friends? I guess. That seems that small, way. It seems like they had. Favor. Yeah, absolutely. But then I think that's, that's why he's so rejected at the yeah, end. Right. He was so like played to take the fall. He was right. yeah. He was basically used by Terry. And then when Terry calls him a loser, he's just like fuck this. And then he just shoots him. You know, a born loser. Um, <laughs> let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back to give our rating for the film The Long Goodbye. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Jews on Film. We are here with Noah Rinsky. And of course, we're here with Harry, our uh, our good friend, Harry. Uh, so now we're going to be discussing the film and kind of giving it our rating on a scale of one to five Jewish stars. We'll talk about cast and crew, Jewish content, and then Jewish themes. And then, uh, you know, give it, on a, give it a, a number of one to five Jewish stars. So um, Jewish stars. There you go, man. You got to stay on brand. Noah, do you want to start first kind of talking about these things and kind of what you thought about the film? Um, the themes? Sure. We could do themes, content, yeah. cast and crew, whatever. And, and then specifically, maybe, yeah. specifically like the Jewishness of them, you know, and I'm, in this case, it's probably less obvious than some other movies, but you know, what if any Jewishness could you read into some of the themes of the movie, some of the content? I, you know, <clears throat> and then save your numbers for the end end. So like do sure. your thing and then we'll all do our thing and then we'll all give numbers maybe. I guess. I, guess now that, I guess now that I'm thinking about it, I obviously never thought of this before the podcast, but um, since we never really got to the bottom of both Marlowe's sense of justice or sexual morality or, you know, kind of his, his being able to resist temptation throughout the movie and Altman's decision to cast a, a Jew in this character as his character and kind of making uh, Marlowe uh you know intentionally jewish it is kind of funny or interesting that he you know kind of it's probably an overstatement but like the light you know kind of like the guiding the the, the guiding light of the light upon the light into the world or something you know where you have this guy who is meant to kind of not be the fixer but the guy who's basically looking at things and saying look how far we've fallen i can't believe that people be, you know behave like this you know, I can't believe the temptation that I have to, you know, to just be above it all and to make that a Jewish character where you don't really right. have to, mm-hmm. um, I think is, uh, is an interesting decision. And obviously it was intentional. I feel like um, I think the cast and crew for me, you know, uh, Elliot Gould, obviously. And then uh, we have our, our Marty Augustine character played by Mark Rydell. And then I I I don't know for sure, but I feel like Dr. Verringer had like a Jewish vibe going to him. You know, kind of like this, like yeah. sneaky sort of medical doctor vibe. Yeah. Um, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna say, uh, you know, Henry Gibson, the actor who played him. I'm not sure. Yeah, uh, let's see. Uh, not sure well, at the time of recording whether or not but he it reads he, that way. But he reads Jewish way. for sure. He's coded Jewish. If you want to use that, the lingo uh, thing skill. Um, you know, and and I think uh, I'm trying to think of uh, you know, obviously the mentions. Uh, you know, like Harry mentioned, but. Um, you know, Marty Augustine's mentioning of the different things, you know, it has like a very Jewish sentiment, uh, overall themes, you know, like the morals of it, everyone's kind of morally ambiguous, like the gangsters who want to like smash bottles and faces are also like really nice shul going Jews, right? You know, they'll smash a bottle in their, uh, mistress's face, but then they also let you know that they have to go to a synagogue. And then apparently one of the other gangsters named Harry 
his dad was a Moel. So Marty Augustine mm-hmm. says to Harry, our sort of clumsy gangster who doesn't know how to trail Marlowe, he's like, Do you think it's funny? Well, funny no, to steal $355,000 from Marty Augustine? Jack, oh, let me see that knife. Oh, with pleasure, Marty. Give it to me. Harry, your father was a Moel. Cut him. What? A, a person who does ritual circumcisions like... So these people are, you know, good, God-fearing Jews who also happen to be in the gangster business. Um, but I just, I, I don't know. I just like the the moral aspect of it, that it's like morally ambiguous. I think that um, <clears throat> I, I, I dug that. And then the content-wise, you know, not super Jewish for me from a strict plot perspective. Um, yeah. Harry, what about you? Yeah, I, I agree with a lot of the points you're making. You know, I'm happy that you pointed out that that Moa line, you know, with Marty, because I just think that he was so clearly like the Jewish center of the film in terms of like explicit Jewishness and content. And it's funny because when I watched this, I definitely thought that we were going to follow, you know, Marlo, the sort of Elliot Gould character and kind of do this Jewish read. But I ultimately don't see it so much like there's there's the quippiness I mentioned and like For it's sure. kind of like coded in there. But I think ultimately his persona leans more towards exactly what we're describing as this sort of 50s noir, you know, private detective kind of just sort of out of sorts and making sense of that. than it does, you know, sort of the Jewish reading like I I think it'd be an interesting experiment to watch this character in conjunction with or just in parallel with the way that it's been represented by Humphrey Bogart, like you're saying, and sort mm-hmm. of in other, um, in other realizations of the story. But it definitely, even though there was a little bit of Jewishness in there, I didn't, it didn't scream Jewishness to me, but you, right. know, you can't get rid of the sort of Marty content. Like that stuff is so clearly there. Sure. I, I thought about it a little bit thematically. I mean, one of the big mm-hmm. questions other than sort of being out of place and kind of trying to make sense of a new world, which I'm sure there's a Jewish read on that. And I was going to go down that path, but I wanted to go slightly different was, one of the big questions I had with this movie is why does he care so much to kind of solve this mystery? Because as far as he knows, and it's, it's possible Marlowe didn't know that his friend, you know, that Terry had died already, you know, or maybe he didn't believe that his friend Terry was dead, but considering that he did commit suicide and, you know, at some point halfway through the film, Marlowe actually gets to see a picture of the dead body of Terry. So he had all any reason to believe that he was dead. You know, why does he care so much about solving this case? And is it because like he's not going to change anything for the life of his friend. So it's just, he doesn't need to absolve himself. Like no one's actually incriminating him. You know, he had his alibi and I kind of read it as he's really just trying to, you know, he's serving both like truth, I think, whatever objective sense of truth is yeah, like, I want that's for right. the record. Yeah. And I think it's just like preserving the reputation of his friend. And he's like, this was an upstanding guy that, you know, had, you know, had gambling stuff. Like he knew that, you know, Terry was capable of some stuff, but he's like, this is an upstanding guy. I don't want him to be remembered as being this murderer. And I think with that thread, I kind of thought about the idea of like a shame tove and having like a good name and like your mm-hmm. legacy and in the sort of Jewish realm of like, you know, what exists beyond you after you're dead. And, and reputation is not a strictly Jewish concept, not even close, but kind of his commitment to it felt like, you know, this real preservation of like, this real like mourning, almost like, uh, like Shiva kind of the concept, Jew, well, the, where the Jewish, well, the Jewish idea about talking about the dead is that's a, that's a very Jewish idea, right? A hundred percent, a hundred percent, and that that's exactly what I was trying to build towards with like the concept of like the Shiva, where it's like you know, I think yeah. you said it better, like just talking about the dead and like refreshing kind of all the good stories and all the good memories of, of him. And I think that's really ultimately his pursuit. So through that lens, you know, this entire case that he's trying to solve this case of, you know, trying to absolve a dead person who killed who might've killed another dead person. Like it really only becomes meaningful in pursuit of like talking about his friend and protecting sure. his name. 
and through that sort of Jewish lens, like I, I do feel like there's a little bit of, of Jewishness in that theme. So with all that, I'll, I'll start us off on the rankings, kind of giving sure. our numbers. You know, this, this isn't the most obviously Jewish movie we've ever done. And it's, you know, I think taking a lot of stretches for us. I don't think anyone would watch this movie and kind of read it as, you know, I'm watching a Jewish movie. So with all that, you know, I'll give a point for, for Marty because I thought he was amazing. So that's, you know, just sort of one just to start because he just a lot of explicit Jewish content, even though he's ultimately, it's very few and far between and not essential to the film. It is there. And then maybe a half a point for kind of Marlowe and how we're reading him. So Wait, oh, is Mar- uh, sorry, I, I might've fucked this whole thing up. Because I, when I watched the when I watched the movie, I didn't think of Marlowe as, 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 as being Jewish. At all. Is there any mention of Elliot Gould's character being Jewish? No. There's not, right? Like, I'm I'm happy you asked that because I don't like, think so. Uh, okay. Like okay. I don't think, I think canonically, yeah, he's Jewish. I think there is like we're talking about you know sort of subtext and the way Just that people were talking okay. about. Okay, yeah, and I think that's the Elliot Gould of it, right. no. and that's like that's the Elliot Gould of it, and that's like this recasting of this you know Philip Marlowe he's character like from the books Jewish. and sure. exactly. Yeah, and it's like it's like yeah, okay. it's it's taking this character that was formerly very like sort of stoic and and just it's a characterization we're making of a sort of non-Jewish right. character Marty's and kind of bringing Jew. him exactly. Yes. But Marty's yeah. the real Jew, so that's Marty's why I'm going Jew. one star and then a half a star for Elliot Gould as wow. sort of a Jewish icon, and I'm giving this one and a half stars out of five Jewish stars for its Jewishness. No, we'll get to you in a second, but I just did want to add one point to what you were saying, Harry, because I think this idea that he's trying to clear his friend's name, like stings even more towards the end of the film. He spent all this time, all this energy, so many like rough, you know, getting roughed up and getting beat up and getting, you know, put in the hospital for his friend only to then come to his friend at the end. And his friend was like, surprise, I'm alive. And he's like, I'm trying to bust my ass here, clear your name. And you're alive, like fooling around with this woman, which is why I think when Terry then calls him a loser, he's just like, forget it. I'm throwing my morals out the window and kills him. I just thought I would add that because like the more that we talk about how much Marlowe is like sacrificing himself for the sake of his friend, only to have his friend kind of stab him in the back is kind of shitty. But, you know, that's the film noir model. So, <laughs> Noah, we'll go to you. How did you feel like this film rated on a ranked on a scale from one to five Jewish stars based uh, on all this? Yeah, you know, you gotta, you gotta, you get a star for Elliot and then I guess you get a uh, yeah, I guess you get a. I agree with you. You get a half star for Marty. It's it's not a Jewish. This isn't a Jewish film. I mean, sure. it's, you got Elliot Gould. It's not a Jewish film, right? So, okay. It's got some. It's got some Jewish. I guess it has some Jewish elements. Every movie has like uh, Jewish elements. You know, sure. if there's good and evil, then I guess there's good Jewish elements. Sure. Yeah. So you're going one and a half stars. I go. Uh, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll match you, Harry. Okay. All right. Sounds great good to me. I think you know. I'll probably you know, echo a lot of your sentiments, Harry and Noah, I think, you know, Elliot Gould being Jewish in, in real life, but then also his like Jewish sentiment, this sort of like wisecracking private detective. Um, I'll give that some points. I, I loved Marty Augustine's like his whole vibe um, talking about going to synagogue and doing wow. the Moa line and things like that. Um, but yeah, ultimately him, you know, he's not like such a major character in the film. It's just like a subplot. So I might just go like two stars, maybe just, just to be different, to be my own, like, you know, unique person. I'll maybe go like a star for Marty and a star for Philip Marlowe's character played by Elliot Gould. But yeah, again, really just to be different. It's like not a hugely Jewish film. I love this film. Um, I pointed this out to Harry, but when we first started Jews on film on Instagram, 
the first post that I posted was just like a picture of Elliot Gould coming out of jail with the newspaper. And I just like put a little synopsis of the film because I was like, this is the kind of film that I want to read Jewishly. And I'm so glad, Noah, that you were able to help us today uh, talk about the film. Um, so, Noah, you know, at this time, I wanted to ask if there's anything you'd like to talk about and promote for those who are listening. Follow old Jewish men and uh, spend as much money as they possibly can on the uh, merchandise that we sell. Can you tell old, us a little bit about it? And, and oldjewishmen.net like, old uh, about the merchandise or just everything. Like for those who are not familiar with the concept of old Jewish men and, and yeah. kind of what, what it's all about. Well, it's basically a uh, both a comedy troupe and <laughs> it's a bunch of it's a bunch of old it's a bunch of old guys with a lot a uh, lot to say. You know, both, link it in the uh, show notes for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, with a lot to say, you know, they got problems, but they got a lot of, lot of issues, whether it's public toilets or uh, issues with, you know, deli meat prices. And uh, we got to get to uh, we got to we got to get to yes on, on a lot of different issues in this uh, in this country that, uh, you know, old Jewish men have very specific uh, needs that the, that the page is meant to convey their uh, their gripes. And so you have a lot of merchandise up on your store. I'm looking at it now. You have like, uh, you know, Ralph Lauren hats that say like Ralph Lifshitz, like his real name and things like that. You have, uh, you know, um, bags that say Schlepp and things like that. So a lot of good stuff on there. Um, where can people find out about uh, Old Jewish Men? Uh, we're on Instagram and TikTok. Fantastic. Both Instagram and TikTok. Yeah, then oldjewishmen.net. So. Awesome. Yeah, no, that's, about, that's, that's about it for us. Uh, we don't really have a uh, YouTube uh, following or much of a Twitter following. That's plenty. But, well, Noah, Noah Rinsky, thank you so much for being here on Jews on Film. Well, make sure to follow us on all the social medias on Instagram. We're now on YouTube. Check out our past episodes there. Uh, we're on TikTok. I think that's about it. What's your also, TikTok content? uh probably just like little clips of our of our show maybe uh probably have a good one up here um but we'll uh make sure to we'll tag you in it and stuff like that make sure for everyone else uh to listen to our podcast uh you know if you're on itunes or spotify make sure to uh, like and subscribe it rate it five stars if you can have a great one um i just got a phone call about my first case as my for my new private investigator uh line of work. So I got to go take that, but it was really nice talking to you, Noah, Harry, have a good one and we'll see you later. Thanks for having me guys. My pleasure. It was very fun. Bye-bye. Jews on Film is hosted and produced by Harry Ottensasser and Daniel Zana. Daniel and Harry edited this episode. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at Jews on Film and subscribe to our podcast to get new episodes. Thanks for listening.